This is They Create Worlds, episode 192, Microprose, part one. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. Today, we will bring you a tale of spaceships, war, destruction, 4Xs, and software made by some sort of microprosing company. But first, I must assail you once more with two important facts. The first being that Episode 200 is only eight episodes away. That's right. I want you to send us things about it. What do you like about us? What do you hate about us? Anything. And it can be one sentence. I don't care. It can be one word. If it's a particularly ambiguous word, we reserve the right to put our own interpretation to it. But yeah, whatever you want. Just as a reminder, we do this twice a month every month without ever doing sane things like taking breaks. So eight episodes means four months away. It's coming up. Someone who can do math. Important (laughs) skill. The other thing is, it's coming up. It's less than six weeks away. It is, or at least less than six weeks away as of this recording. (laughs) Dragon Con. Alex and I will be there. Alex just sort of lives there or something. We will be talking about the seventh guest. Not how you will hear it, but how we will present it. A quick, concise, under 50-minute presentation about it. You can just go there and just stand in shock and awe that Alex can talk about something in less than 50 minutes. (laughs) I tailor my message to my medium. (laughs) Exactly. So, if you happen to be in the Atlanta area at the end of August, beginning of September, Labor Day weekend... Feel free to pop on by and say hi to us. We know we are on the schedule, but we can't tell you because they haven't released it yet. So, check the schedule, check the future, and you could possibly say hi to us. That's right. I also tend to work the information services desks during the con as well. I volunteer, so you can always come up and say hi for two seconds at an information desk too. Only two seconds, because you actually like doing other work then, but you know. It's all good. But now, you know, Jeffrey, I have to admit, after you said, you know, Alex just kind of lives there, I'm picturing like a phantom of the opera situation where I just roam between the host hotels like all year round, like evading the tech crew and the custodial crew and stealing food from the restaurants to stay alive. I just live at con all year round and just come out officially for those five days to interact with the people legally. You are the librarian, head researcher of They Create Worlds. So you can have the They Create Worlds cloak, complete with history man motif. Hmm. I don't know. It looks better in my head than probably the word. (laughs) Before I dig myself even more into a hole, let us dig into the history of microprose. That's right. One of the truly classic computer game companies of the 1980s and 1990s, Microprose got its start really in simulation-style games, flight simulators especially, and then branched out into other areas, most successfully into what came to be called 4X strategy games. 
Despite Jeff's intro, we won't be getting into any of that 4X stuff really in this episode. We won't. This will be a two-parter, one of those rare instances where I have the self-awareness to understand that I'm not going to tell a story in a single episode. Obviously, that means it becomes three episodes. Oh, God, no. (laughs) (laughs) That has happened. One time it became four episodes. We don't talk about that. But there really isn't enough material for three episodes, but we are going to take it in two episodes, basically doing the 1980s in this one and the 1990s in the next one. We've talked about microprose a little bit because we did do an episode on Sid Meier with a particular emphasis on the creation of civilization. This is going to be a broader look at microprose as a company, and so obviously we can't do that without also discussing Sid Meier, but it's not just going to be a rehash of when we did our Sid Meier episode couple hundred back or whenever that was. I don't know. So many anymore. Close to 200, as we kind of mentioned at the top of the hour. Okay, so if we're not talking about Master of Orion or Master of Orion 2 or 3, I'm sure they made some other games. Master of Orion 3 isn't a microprose game. (laughs) That came later. Okay, well, there's a heretic game in there somewhere. But that's okay. Where did microprose come from? Who's involved? Who do I blame? Who do I thank and who do I (laughs) have to go and have words with about why the company went under? Hmm. Well, Microprose, as with so many of the very early companies at the dawn of the computer game business in the United States, was the brainchild of two individuals, a really savvy tech guy who was really into computers and computer games and a really savvy business guy who ended up getting together and being like, let's do a game company together. Well, we have shown that that combination tends to work really, really well. So we're off to a good start here. That's right. The technical guy, of course, is the absolute legend, Mr. Sid Meier. There are very, very, very vanishingly few people that got their start in the early 1980s and are still actively involved in the creation of video games today. Sid Meier is one of them. Truly a legendary individual. But no less legendary is the businessman who founded the company with him, one John Wilbur Steely, far better known by the name Wild Bill. I remember you telling me about interviewing him and <laughs> I did, how yes. he is very eccentric. I don't know if eccentric is the right word, but he is very animated, brash, full of bravado, larger than life, fighter pilot persona, and a truly fascinating individual to have a conversation with. We're going to start our story with this individual by the name of Wild Bill. Wild Bill Steely, as I said, was born John Wilbur Steely. There's no Bill in his name. In 1947, in Akron, Ohio, his father had been an army bombardier in the war, presumably. Don't know where else where he'd be an army bombardier. And uh, then became a civil engineer. Unfortunately, the elder Steely died in 1955 when Wild Bill was eight years old, killed by a drunk driver. This was effectively the end of Bill Steely's childhood. 
When you don't have a father figure around, sometimes you have to grow up fast. Of course, this was a time when women didn't tend to have careers, uh, tended to be homemakers. This was a struggling period that started here, and Wild Bill became the man of the house. He's an incredibly smart guy. He's an incredibly motivated guy, an incredibly driven guy. He basically became the man of the house at the age of eight. He had uh, younger siblings. He helped look out for them, helped his mother, etc. By the age of 10, he was basically in charge of the family finances. Their mom was a profligate spender, spending that she was unable to rein in. The family moved from Akron to Winchester, Virginia, after father died. They were able to purchase a house using his life insurance policy, but pretty soon they were living on Social Security, $225 a month. His mother was incapable of living within that budget, and so by the age of 10, he was running the family finances. When he was unable to stop his mom from spending, and there were times when they couldn't pay bills, he would be the one that would negotiate with the creditors to arrange installment plans before he was even a teenager. At 10 to 11 years old. That's right. He was the only one. There was no one else. His mother couldn't handle it. His father was gone, and he was the eldest child. That's just shocking. Yeah. Imagine any 10 or 12-year-old today <laughs> that's thrust into any kind of position with that much responsibility. Well, It speaks a lot to him that he can actually has enough wherewithal at that age to have that much discipline and negotiating skills. Absolutely. It also instilled with him a burning desire to never, ever be that poor again. Wild Bill Steely, from a very young age, was driven to succeed. He wasn't greedy. He wasn't give me all the money in the world, money, 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 money. It wasn't like that. But he was driven to succeed so that he would never, ever experience poverty like that in his life again. Even though he was a very smart child, he was not necessarily a very tough child. In youth, he was kind of meek and mild and would get picked on. He tells the story, he didn't tell this to me, I have other profiles of him too, but he tells the story about when he was 15 years old, how he was roughed up by a gang of teenagers. His mother paid an 18-year-old kid $1 an hour to basically beat him up several times a week, not just to beat him up, but to teach him self-defense so that he could take care of himself. Through this experience, through this instruction, he learned how to fight back. He fought back against the gang that had beat him up, did so so effectively that they asked if he was interested in joining their gang. This was kind of the beginning of the Wild Bill persona, this more brash, more confident, more aggressive individual, kind of this combination of having to run the family household and having these problems with these gangs and learning how to stand up for himself. Now, he didn't join the gang because he was one of the good kids. He wasn't turning into a delinquent. But he did start channeling this newfound aggression and brashness into sports. He became a basketball player in high school. And as he said, again, not in my interview, but in another profile, as he said, he was the one that you brought in when you needed to foul another player. 
you know, obviously fouls are against the rules, you get penalized for them, but sometimes part of the strategy is drawing fouls from certain particularly good players on the other team to get free throw opportunities or to try to even get them enough fouls that they foul out of the game. He was the guy that was brought in to dish out the fouls and draw the fouls because he was that forceful and that competitive. He hated to lose. He loved to win. He loved to compete. He would take nothing from nobody. After he graduated from high school, he decided that he wanted to join the Air Force. So he went to the Air Force Academy with the intention of becoming a fighter pilot. Again, you know, the fighter pilots are the the best of the best. They're the big manly men. They're the hotshots. I mean, just think the movie Top Gun. The Top Gun movie is obviously an over-the-top 80s action flick, but Still, kind of the the way the fighter pilots, in that case, Navy aviators, the way they're portrayed there, I mean, that's very kind of true to the kind of cocky fighter pilot persona. It fit his competitive drive. It fit his drive to be the best. And of course, it's a high thrills kind of job being a fighter pilot. And it provides, you know, you're not going to become rich, but it certainly provides financial security. So he entered the Air Force Academy with the full intention of being a fighter pilot. He did graduate, commissioned an officer in the Air Force. Unfortunately, he didn't have the best eyesight. It wasn't the worst eyesight in the world either. He wasn't nearly blind or anything, but he did have to wear glasses. If you have to wear glasses, you are, quite frankly, simply not going to be a fighter pilot. But he did become a pilot. He just wasn't able to fly fighters. He flew training aircraft, T-37 as an instructor. Then he was a pilot of C-5A Galaxy transport planes, biggest military transport planes operated by the United States Air Force. As he put it to me, though, he became a pilot to have fun. Flying big Hulkin transport planes wasn't his idea of fun. So he decided that life in the Air Force was not going to be for him long term, if that's the best he was going to be able to do flying-wise. After six years, he did leave the Air Force at the rank of captain. He continued for 10 more years to serve in the Air National Guard, so he didn't completely give up flying. And in the Air National Guard, where the standards weren't quite as high, he was able to talk his way into flying A-37 aircraft, which are a little more combat-oriented aircraft. He got to fly some more jet fighter-like planes in his Air National Guard service. I believe he eventually rose to the rank of at least major in the Air National Guard. I don't know if he got higher than that. He did leave the Air Force after six years. I do need to go back for a second because I should mention as well, it's also in his Air Force Academy days that he got his nickname of Wild Bill. And it actually had nothing to do with being a pilot, but it went back to the competitiveness in the sports. At the Air Force Academy, he played lacrosse. He was known for his particular aggressiveness. He would come at anybody anytime, as as he said in one of his interviews, you know, you might get the goal off of him, but your ribs were going to be hurting afterwards. He would crash into anybody, take on anyone in the game. And it was his lacrosse coach. I believe it was his coach and not his teammates, but it was in his lacrosse career that he gained the nickname Wild Bill, which is the name that he would go by ever after and, and still likes to go by today. He was generally not called Bill Steely. After all, Bill is not even his name. His name is John Wilbur. He definitely always went by Wild Bill and has always, throughout his career and his life, has maintained kind of that brash, confident, over-the-top Wild Bill fighter pilot persona. 
After the Air Force, of course, as we talked about, because of his poverty and his background, Wild Bill really wanted to make sure that he was never poor again. So if he's going to leave the Air Force, he wants to do something that really brings in the big bucks. And he's a smart guy. We talked about that as well. He's very smart. He decides that he is going to go to law school. A good lawyer makes the big bucks. Then another Air Force Academy graduate that he knew, I think they're just having a conversation, you know, and asked him what kind of lawyer he wanted to be. He didn't really know because he didn't really know what kind of lawyers were out there in his own words. He just knew he wanted to do something that was big in business. So his friend said to him, well, if you want to be a business leader, go to business school and get your MBA. That's what you should do to be a business leader. Back in this period of time, nowadays, there are so many MBAs. Too many people go through MBA programs. Back then, fewer people went through MBA programs. So, you know, getting that MBA was certainly a fast track to getting into the business world, which is what Steely wanted to do because he never wanted to be stuck in poverty ever again. So instead of going to get his law degree, he went to the Wharton School of Business, one of the most prestigious business schools in the United States, in Philadelphia. He was about 30 years old at the time. So to put that in perspective, this is about mid-1970s is what we're talking about here when he's going back to business school, late 1970s. Of course, he already had some experience being a leader of men because he had been a captain in the Air Force. You know, that I think kind of helped him. He was older than a lot of his fellow students because he had spent that time in the Air Force. When he graduated from business school, he went into the consulting world, first for a company called Cresap McCormick and Paget in New York City, and then he joined the very famous McKinsey and Company, one of the most famous consulting companies in the world. He did consulting work for three years between those two companies and discovered that he absolutely hated it. Absolutely hated it. And it goes back to that same personality, that same Wild Bill persona that was, while partially manufactured and created by him, also came from a real place inside of him as well. Wild Bill is a man of action. Wild Bill is a man of danger. Not duty? Wild Bill is Dr. Tran. No, but uh, (laughs) Wild Bill is a person who wants to be out there doing stuff. Consulting companies don't do stuff. Consulting companies review a business, write up reports about a business, provide suggestions to a business or whatever organization they're working for. It doesn't have to be a business about how they should do things in the future. Then you move on to the next company. So, you know, they bill by the hour. So it's a lot of listening. It's a lot of talking. It's a lot of writing up reports. Then at the end, you make a bunch of suggestions and then leave and go on to the next client. You don't get to implement anything. That does not suit a man of action like Mr. Wild Bill Steely. He decided the consulting thing was not for him at all. So instead, after three years, he moved on into the business world, and joined the company General Instrument. General Instrument we've talked about before on the show because one of the things that they very famously did is they did the Pong on a chip that allowed everybody and his brother to enter the video game business in the mid-1970s with the dedicated Pong consoles. But General Instrument was a very diversified electronics company. They did a lot of different things. That was a very small part of their business. They were not primarily a video game company. He had nothing to do with video games. They were in cash registers. They were in gambling equipment like betting machines, odds machines, which are called totalizers, stuff like that. They were in cable TV. They were in a lot of different fields. They did a lot of contract work for creating components for other companies, that kind of thing. 
They're based in New York, but he was assigned as the director of strategic planning for a division in Hunt Valley, Maryland, near Baltimore. That is the environment in which he met our second protagonist in this big microprose story, which of course is one Mr. Sid Meyer. Sid Meier is a very different kind of guy than Wild Bill, which is probably good. I don't think Mike Prose would have thrived if there were two Wild Bills butting heads with each other. Sid Meier was your classic, shy, introverted nerd. He is actually Canadian by birth, though he is really basically American, though neither of his parents are American. His father was from Switzerland. His mother was from the Netherlands. I don't know how they met. I don't know the full story about how these two came together. But at some point, and again, I don't know when, I don't know quite as much about his background as Wild Bill's, but at some point, uh, you know, they were living in Europe. They saw the opportunities that were available, you know, in the post-World War II period in the United States and decided that they wanted to immigrate there. However, immigrating directly to the United States wasn't necessarily a simple matter. As Sid Meier tells it, you needed a certain amount of money to make all of that happen. So they couldn't quite get to the United States right away. So instead, they settled in Canada for a few years while they worked up to being able to immigrate to the United States. So because of that, Sid Meier was born in Canada, because that's where his parents were at the time. But they very quickly, when he was like three or four years old, moved to the United States and settled in Detroit, Michigan. Canadian by citizenship, also Swiss by citizenship, because the way Swiss citizenship works is you never lose it. So since his father was Swiss, he also gets Swiss citizenship, even though he's never had any association with Switzerland other than his father being from there, his family being from there. But he's really an American. His father was very interested in gadgets and mechanical stuff and was actually a professional typesetter back in the days before desktop publishing, when you were publishing a newspaper or a magazine and you actually had to go into the printing presses and actually choose the blocks of text you were going to use and choose the font and choose the size and everything by hand and then take these little blocks and set them up within the press and then the ink would run over them and then the paper would run over them and that's how you printed newspapers and magazines. That's what his father did. He was a typesetter. Sid Meier, as far as I know, grew up in a pretty standard kind of middle-class life. He was a devotee of history and model trains and games, discovered Avalon Hill board war games, which were all the rage with the nerdy set when he was a child. I suppose I should put this into context as well. He was born in 1954, so just a few years after Wild Bill, but still, you know, part of the baby boomer generation growing up in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, you know, shy, quiet, smart, nerdy. Obviously, the intelligence, Wild Bill and Sid share that, but other than that, (laughs) couldn't have two different people. 1971, he matriculated to the University of Michigan, family's Michigan base, so that stands to reason. His plan was to be a double major in mathematics and physics, as a smart nerd will do. But then, as a lot of smart nerds in that time period were, he was completely sidetracked by these newfangled computer things. He had never interacted with a computer before going to college. He was aware of the concept of a computer, but he'd never had an opportunity. He wasn't at one of these high schools that had a time-sharing teletype or something like that. But he was kind of interested in them. I mean, he liked logic. He liked that idea of systems and models and being able to program and control stuff, as someone interested in mathematics and physics would be. 
So he decided that he would take himself a programming class on an IBM 360 mainframe, punched cards, old school of the old school. I mean, by 1971, you had many computers, you had time-sharing systems, stuff that we've talked about in other episodes. But as we've also talked about in other episodes, computer science curricula have always lagged behind the state of the art of what's going on in computers. We've talked about Jeffrey's very real experience with that when he did his computer science major in a different era at Rolla. I stand by that statement of, especially back then in the 1970s, if you knew about computers, you weren't teaching it. <laughs> right. So it was a punch card course, but he was still fascinated with the ability to program and control these machines and use logical models and whatnot to make stuff happen. And so he very quickly pivoted and changed his major from that double physics math major to computer science. He also got an opportunity to interact with some more interesting computers because he did do work study as part of financing his education. He ended up getting a job at the university, working in a computer lab for a professor by the name of Dr. Noah Sherman. This was in his second year of college, so this would be the 72-73 college year. He got a job programming for Dr. Sherman. Dr. Sherman actually had a teletype hooked into a time-shared computer, so we're not talking punch cards anymore. He was actually able to do interactive programming. He became very interested very quickly in artificial intelligence, but not artificial intelligence necessarily in the sense of like a chat GPT or something today where computers are spitting out stuff based on prompts. He was very interested in systems and the way AI can respond to complex instructions and make decisions. He very quickly gravitated towards games because of that. He was a game player. I mean, he played the Avalon Hill Board War games when the arcade games, arcade video games started coming out, the Days of Space Invaders and Asteroids a few years after this. I mean, he became very much into that. He's interested in games and he's interested in AI. And so he decides that he's going to start doing kind of his own game experiments. I mean, he's doing projects for Dr. Sherman. In the summer of 1975, Dr. Sherman actually took a long vacation to Italy over the summer and basically gave Sid Meier the keys to the kingdom while he was gone and said, do whatever you want in the computer lab this summer. You know, I, I don't care. With all of that free time to just experiment with the computer, he started experimenting with making games. The very first game he made was a simple tic-tac-toe program. It's a great one, you know, when you're starting out futzing around with artificial intelligence or what have you, because the rules are very simple and the patterns are very simple, and it's a relatively easy game for a computer to learn. Of course, a very easy game for a computer to learn how to play perfectly every time so that they either win or draw every time, as is famously demonstrated in the movie War Games, in which the supercomputer that runs all the nuclear warheads decides that nuclear war is futile because nobody wins because he plays a bunch of tic-tac-toe and realizes that nobody wins at tic-tac-toe when he plays himself because he just draws himself all the time. I just say stuff like that to force Jeff to put random things in the show notes. Would you like to play a game, Jeffrey? <laughs> How about tic-tac-toe? <laughs> As I communicate with you using an acoustic coupler. That's right. As he was making this tic-tac-toe game, the person kind of in charge of watching over the lab realized what he was up to and was like, hey, wait a minute now. This is a college computer lab. This is for serious research projects. You're not allowed to make games here. 
I'm going to tell your professor what you're doing, and he's not going to be happy with you. So they tracked down poor Dr. Sherman in Italy. This woman was like, blah, 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 you can't believe what this person's doing. And Dr. Sherman was like, look, just let Sid do whatever the heck he wants to do. It's fine. With that blessing, he continued to fool around on the computer and experiment with AI and making games. That was uh, his start. Once he graduated from college, he also got himself a job at General Instrument. He actually started out locally in Michigan as an installer. He was an engineer, but you know he would install cash register systems for companies in the Detroit area as a systems person. Did well enough at that that he got a job down in Hunt Valley, Maryland, as a programmer at General Instrument. Same place as one Wild Bill Steely. Now, in these first years at uh, General Instrument, they did not interact with each other. They were in very different worlds. Sid Meier was a programmer, and Bill Steely was this business person off doing his own thing. But they actually both independently became interested in microcomputers. In the case of Sid Meier, he actually started out programming on mini computers at General Instrument, the first time he'd had access to a mini computer, the Data General Nova, and continued his game experiments in his spare time there. Actually made a Star Trek game using ASCII characters, not the famous Star Trek game that used ASCII characters, not the Mike Mayfield game from California, but all the nerds liked Star Trek back then. All the nerds that were into computers obviously liked Star Trek. I mean, Star Trek had a computer on it. It talked to you and everything and used high-tech storage methods for the 23rd century, like data tapes. Ooh. And switches. <laughs> Don't forget the switches. So many switches. Yes. So there were a lot of people making Star Trek games. And, and his game was not influenced by the Mayfield game or anyone else. In fact, unlike the Mayfield game, which was turn-based, his was real-time. He had this little action-y, arcade-style Star Trek game where everything was represented by ASCII characters, influenced as much by the burgeoning arcade market as anything else. For context, this was about 1979 that he created this Star Trek game. It was not distributed around the country. It was never, to his knowledge, available anywhere else but at his own employer, General Instrument. But it became very popular with all the computer people at General Instrument. So popular that they finally had to tell him to get rid of the game because it was taking up all the valuable computing resources. A constant problem on these early timeshared systems at both businesses and universities, where everyone wants to play games and serious work needs to be done. And because these computers are timeshared and dividing their memory across so many people, there's only so much memory <laughs> available and you can't have it all going to computer games. After he lost access to his Data General as a computer game platform, he decided to turn his attention to what was going on out in the world of these new personal computers that have been around for a few years. You know, he looked at things like the TRS-80, but the TRS-80, it only had character-based graphics. It, it wasn't that great. And, you know, the Apple II's out there, and it has okay graphics, but, of course, it's very expensive. This is right around the time, 1979-1980, when Atari releases its 8-bit computer line as represented by the Atari 400 and 800 computers. These were really for a very brief period of time. Once the Commodore 64 comes out in 1982, things kind of pivot, but for a very brief period of time, 80 to 82, those Atari 8-bit computers were the pinnacle of game-playing machines in the home. 
They had fast, colorful graphics, decent amount of memory, the ability to plug in both cartridges and use disks. This was the state of the art. So Sid Meier bought himself an Atari 800 and started fooling around with that computer. He even started a user group for fellow enthusiasts made up of largely people that he worked with at General Instrument with similar interests. They would get together and learn about the machines together, program together, trade their software, trade other people's software that they didn't have the rights to trade the software, cough piracy, cough, cough, you know, really get enmeshed in the machines. And of course, he continued to do his game experiments. He created a Space Invaders clone that he actually sold. Most people think his professional career began with Microprose, but uh, it actually began a little bit before that. His user group was approached by an entrepreneur that was looking to get into this nascent microcomputer market and have some business educational software for kids and commissioned him to create a couple of games. And so he created what he called Bank Game 1 and Bank Game 2 that were these really simple educational games, not like adding games or money games like that. One of them, I think, was even based on Frogger a little bit in the way you dodged stuff. Because again, he was very into the you know arcade scene. He was also continuing his own experiments. He created a game called Hostage Rescue that was kind of based a little bit on Defender and inspired by the Iran hostage crisis, where you were having to rescue hostages and shoot at enemies, and there was this giant Ayatollah head on one side of the screen. He never released that one, but then he created a, a Space Invaders clone. And he actually took that one down to the local computer shop and gave him a handful of copies, and then the guy agreed to hang it on the wall with the software. We've talked about this in some of our other computer software companies, where that's what would happen with a lot of early softwares. You'd just make a game locally, and you'd just take it to your local computer store. There was no distribution. And you'd just be like, hey, I created this game. You want to sell a few copies? And the computer stores were in desperate need of product to convince people to buy their hardware, so they were always willing to take a chance on these guys and you know take a few copies, and if it's sold... Great, maybe ask for a few more, and if it doesn't sell, whatever. You know, they didn't pay much for them to begin with, so it's all fine. His game presumably didn't sell that well because he never sold them anymore, but that was the first time that he actually had a game available for sale. He made a Pac-Man game as well, though he didn't sell that one. He just shared it with members of his user group. He was getting more and more involved in learning the intricacies of this computer. The Atari 800 was a pretty closed box when it came out, which actually inhibited its ability to become a leading games platform. It should have been the premier games platform before the Commodore 64 came out and not the Apple II. But Atari had made the rather boneheaded decision that they were going to supply all the software. And so they deliberately did not put out a lot of technical documentation and programming guides for the general public for the Atari 8-bit computers because they didn't want people to hone in on their territory. One of the things that really drove Sid Meier, very similar to Will Wright, who we just covered recently, is he was driven by his desire of figuring out something new, figuring out how to do something different or better than he had before. He wasn't about doing the same kind of program over and over again. I mean, he was interested in games. He wanted to do games, but he didn't want to just do the same game over and over. As he was figuring out the inner workings of these Atari 8-bit systems more and more and got particularly adept at working with the player missile graphics within the system, what today we would call sprites, he decided to make a racing game that he called Formula One Racing. 
that took good advantage of these player missile graphics to run, you know, smoother and, and faster than some of his other stuff. This was actually his true first commercial game. I mean, he sold a couple of copies of that Space Invaders game, but this one he actually sold to a software company, an early software company called Acorn, not the Acorn of the United Kingdom. This was a small company in the United States, Acorn Software Products, that didn't last very long. That was in 1982 that he sold that game. Interestingly enough, because of course later on he was very famous for being the guy whose name was on the box, Sid Meier's Pirates, Sid Meier's Civilization, Sid Meier's Railroad Tycoon. Interestingly enough, even in this very first packaged game of his, Formula One, the box art said Formula One by Sid Meier, which was not common at the time. That wasn't his call. I think it was the company's call. It's funny. It doesn't play at all into the reason why his name was put on the box later, but it's just kind of funny that his very first commercial game right on the box said Formula One by Sid Meier. Almost like the public zeitgeist said, Sid Meier's putting out a game. It had to have his name on it prominently. (laughs) That's right. So, you know, like I said, a lot of people don't realize that he had this small budding game career. There wasn't much to it, but he had this small budding game career even before Microprose. And I didn't realize this either. And this information is actually very new compared to the last time we covered Sid Meier, because we did our Sid Meier episode in 2017. And in 2020, Sid Meier released his memoir, his autobiography. Because Sid Meier's a more reserved person, I mean, he's given interviews. It's not like he'd never done an interview before. There wasn't as much interview material with him, certainly not as much as with Wild Bill, who will talk your ear off about anything. Some of this early stuff was really kind of obscured the last time that we did a look at Sid Meier, which is why we are going into depth on this stuff now, because we have his memoir, which really fills in some of these early holes. He's got the Formula One game. He's starting to experiment with other games. He's figured out how to do these fast graphics on Formula One. So now he's working on a couple of other games. He's working on a helicopter game that allows scrolling in multiple directions, because again, he's kind of driven by the next technical challenge, just like Will Wright was driven to create by finding the new interesting topic, finding the new system, finding the new equation that led him to want to figure out how that would work and how that would be modeled on a computer. Sid Meier was very much driven by, what's this next neat thing I can do? Okay, I figured out how to do player missile graphics well and make something a little faster paced. Let's do Formula One. I figured out how to do scrolling in all directions. Let's start work on a helicopter game. Okay, well, cars and helicopters are all static things that don't require a huge amount of animation. What about animating characters? So he started working on a platform game. So he's working on this helicopter game. He's working on this platform game. He's thinking about, you know, it would be cool if I could maybe figure out how to be a game designer full time. At this point, he's, you know, still got his day job at General Instrument. He's got his user group with for the Atari 800. This is the person that Sid Meier is when he has his first fateful contact with Wild Bill Steely. Now we have to back up again. We have to do the Hamilton thing where we back up and go in reverse and tell the same set of events from another character's point of view. And talk about Wild Bill at the same time again. So Wild Bill is, in his own words, a very lazy guy. That's his way of saying it. Now, of course, he's not really lazy, but he very much ascribes to the Scrooge McDuck method of making money, which is... Work smarter, not harder. That's right. When he was at one of his consulting gigs, 
he had fooled around with creating some financial software that he could use on their timesharing systems to do, you know, financial projections and that kind of thing. This was when he was at his first consulting gig, to be specific, Kresap McCormick. He did some programming, some simple programming, and he wasn't really a programmer, but he had some financial modeling software programmed at this job that he could use on their timeshared system to do a bunch of financial projections. Then when he came to General Instrument, he wanted to do the same kind of thing, but General Instrument didn't have a system that he could do this on, and they were not interested in buying computer time to do this kind of thing. So he was going to have to go back to doing all of this stuff by hand. That's the kind of working harder that Wild Bill had no interest in doing. He was kind of vaguely aware of what was going on in home computers as well, and he was aware that a little thing called VisiCalc had come out for spreadsheet software. So he decided, well, General Instrument isn't going to get computing time to do this. I'm going to go out and buy my own computer. So as he tells the story, now I, I got to say, Wild Bill is a straight shooter. But he maintains this larger-than-life persona, and he's got the bravado, the fighter pilot bravado, and he is an embellisher and he is a tale teller. So we will tell some of Wild Bill's very interesting stories, and we can be assured that what happened was probably very similar to how he tells it. He's not just making up things out of whole cloth. But we can also assume that it wasn't quite as interesting or quite as dramatic as Wild Bill tells it. We're going to let Wild Bill the Storyteller take central stage here a few times, just with that caveat in place. Now, if only we could splice in some of those interviews. <laughs> right. As he tells it, he goes down to the local computer store, and they got three systems there. First, he looks at their TRS-80. And the TRS-80, it's character-based graphics only. It's monochrome, you know, like white text or amber text. There's not much going on. And so he's like... Well, this is lame. So then he goes over to the Apple II, and he's like, well, what's this one? And the guy's like, well, this is the Apple II. Wild Bill's words, the other guy tells him, you know, it can do four colors. It can actually do more than that, but in its high-res mode, it can only do four colors. Technically six colors, but it's complicated. Don't worry about it. We talk about that, I think, in one of our episodes where we're talking about the early computers. He's like, well, four colors, woohoo. That's not so fun. That seems kind of lame. And then as he tells it, he hears these dramatic sounds coming from the next computer over, and that's the Atari 800, and the Atari 800 has Star Raiders playing on it. We've talked about Star Raiders before, the classic first-person space shooting game that was one of the first real killer apps for computer games and was certainly the killer app for the Atari 800 computer. And he's like, what is that? So the guy explains it's the Atari 400, actually, I should say. The 400's what they had on display, which was the slightly stripped-down version. The Atari 400, and it plays Star Raiders and all of that, and he's like, wow, that's amazing, and does it also do VisiCalc? And the guy's like, yeah, sure, I mean, the 800 does, not the 400, you know, the more advanced one, but yeah, you can do VisiCalc on it. So as Wild Bill put it, he got that one because the game appealed to him, and uh, it could do VisiCalc too. So he bought himself an Atari 800 on the strength of it can do VisiCalc and play Star Raiders. He started using his personal 800 computer and VisiCalc to do his financial planning in his role at General Instrument. He also got into computer games. He's actually very interested in computer games. You know, he's a competitive guy, and, you know, he's a fighter pilot type. He likes action. It's no wonder that he would also end up being drawn to games. 
So that is the situation. These two individuals came to the Atari 800 from opposite directions, and both were interested in this idea of computer games and getting into computer games, because Wild Bill ultimately did want to be an entrepreneur. He wanted to go out and make his own money once he'd established himself in the business world for a few years. And of course, Sid Meier's starting to think about, you know, I, I have fun making these games. Maybe I can do something with this. Even though they work for the same company in the same city, their paths didn't really cross. They had to go to Las Vegas to meet each other because they were both sent to a general instrument convention out in Las Vegas. One of the perks of general instrument being in the gambling business is one of their many businesses is that they would sometimes have conventions out in Vegas. So they went to this company retreat, company offsite. It was general instrument focused. They weren't being wooed by the casino industry. It was just all the managers reporting about their business and talking about their plans for the next year. You know, it was, it was a company offsite is what it was. This was very boring to both Wild Bill Steely and Sid Meier. They happened to be sitting next to each other. So they struck up a conversation. Bill and Sid tell some of this a little bit differently. I think Sid is probably the one who's more accurate because, like I said, Wild Bill is the tale teller. <laughs> he likes telling his stories. But they definitely both agree that they were sitting next to each other, struck up a conversation, learned about each other, learned that they were both interested in games, learned they were both interested in computers. Wild Bill says that Sid Meier said, hey, you want to sneak out of this meeting? I know where there are some games we can play. Sid Meier says that they waited till the meeting was over, and then he said, want to go play some games together. But either way, they end up in the arcade game room at Bally's MGM Casino. Because, of course, remember, this is the height of the Golden Age. So every place has a little video game arcade. That includes the Vegas casinos. They have video game arcades. They find this video game arcade at the Bally MGM Casino. The way Wild Bill tells it, Sid Meier was destroying him at every game they played, getting higher scores. Wild Bill is a competitive guy, he hates to lose, and he's getting more and more cheesed off by this. Wild Bill's telling is more dramatic than Sid's, but Sid's mostly agrees on all of this. Finally, they end up at a Red Baron machine. Red Baron is not one of the more well-known arcade games of the Golden Age these days, but it was an Atari game, and it basically did for aeroplanes what Battlezone did for tanks. It was a vector graphics-based game with a first-person perspective, and you were flying around in a plane, shooting down other planes. It did not do as well as Battlezone, so it's not well-remembered today, but it, it was an Atari game at the time. Another one for the show notes. I already got it up. As Wild Bill tells it, he's like, okay, well, I'm a fighter pilot, so this is right up my alley. Uh, and I think it was, it was a cocktail model as well. So it was a model where you actually sit down, you know, like you're in a, a cockpit and everything. I'm a fighter pilot. This is my game to get my revenge and kick old Sid's ass. So he gets in there and racks up a decent score. Wild Bill does greatly exaggerate the scores. He misremembers or embellishes those. He always says that he sat down and got 75,000 points on the game. Not only does Sid Meier remember it differently, but it's actually basically impossible if, if you actually look at playthroughs of the game and the scoring of the game. The way you accumulate points in the game, there's no way he accumulates 75,000 points. It's a lower scoring game than that. But you know, Wild Bill likes the big stories, so there you go. Mr. Pennsylvania Air National Guard man, Wild Bill, because that's where he went for his National Guard duty was Pennsylvania. Racks up all of these points, and then he's like, okay, beat that. 
Sid Meier gets in the game and promptly beats the score. Wild Bill is just beside himself at this point. He's already getting more and more cheesed off at how he's losing on all of these games. He's basically like, how the, you know what, did you do that? (laughs) He said, oh, well, while you were playing, because Wild Bill went first, I was watching and I memorized the algorithms of the uh, planes. They're really actually very simple algorithms, very predictable patterns. So when it was my turn to sit down, it was very easy to beat those algorithms and score well on the game. Then he went on to say something like, you know, I could design a better game AI in two weeks. Wild Bill, feeling like we're getting close to, it's like bragging now, you know, it's a bragging contest and a fighter pilot like Wild Bill is never going to stand down from a bragging contest. So he said, well, if you can build a game like that in two weeks, I darn sure know that I could sell it and make a bunch of money. (laughs) So now they officially had a bet. According to Sid, they had kind of earlier on mentioned their interests and like Wild Bill had already said at one point, it's like, hey, maybe we should go into business together in in computer games. At that time, Sid Meier had kind of shrugged it off because it's like, okay, yeah, whatever. I mean, who is this guy anyway? They don't know each other. But now that they had this kind of informal bet going, Sid Meier decided to go ahead and design a game. You know, I said he was already working on a helicopter game and a platform game, but, you know, he had specifically promised an airplane game. So even though he had two games in progress, he went back and started this next game. Once again, I mean, obviously there was the, you know, I can create a better game, but he always had a technical hook, particularly in the early days, of stuff that he wanted to do. And so this time the technical hook was, okay, well, something that's different in this uh, flying game that I haven't done before is figuring out how to do the rotation of the sky and the ground. And at this time, it's not very complicated, simple graphics, but basically you're going to have a line that's demarking the horizon and that's going to rotate as your plane rotates, you know, relative to the sky and the ground. So he's like, I'm going to figure out how to do that really well, because he hadn't really seen a game that did a good job of showing that shifting perspective of the horizon. So that was kind of his focus, that and doing a better AI, of course, than the Red Baron game. Those were kind of his primary objectives. Now, this was not a simulator. This was definitely very much an action game at this point. But he decides that he's going to make this action game, and, and that's the game that becomes Hellcat Ace takes place in the Pacific Theater Hellcat fighter planes. That's why it's Hellcat Ace. So it it doesn't actually take him two weeks. As he says in his memoir, I probably really could have created a better game in just two weeks, but I wasn't just aiming to create a better game than this arcade game I saw. I mean, I was out to create a real high-quality best game I possibly could. He took a few months to do it. This convention was around March 1982 to set the time frame. And then in about August, he presented the finished game to Wild Bill. Wild Bill wasn't actually expecting to ever get a game. He wasn't sure that he really wanted to sell it. You know, this was kind of just, it was a fighter pilot not backing down when presented with a bet. So he took it home. He looked at it. It was for the Atari 800. He had his own Atari 800. He took it, he looked at it, and he made a bunch of critiques of it. It turns out he's also something, a perfectionist. He believes very much in things being as authentic as possible, as real as possible within the confines of the technology that they have to work with. So he came back and said, this part could play better. This is historically inaccurate. This doesn't work. Blah, blah, blah. Gave Sid Meier a whole list of fixes. He thought, okay, well, that's going to be the end of that. Well, on Sid Meier's side, he was like, oh. If he's giving me this whole list of suggestions and improvements after thoroughly playtesting the game, 
he's actually serious about this. When he said earlier that we should go into business together as, as entrepreneurs, he wasn't just looking at making a quick buck. He like actually cares about making and selling like quality products. Maybe I could go into business with this guy. He goes through and, and does all the fixes and hands it back and says, okay, I fixed everything. So at that point, Wild Bill's kind of like, okay, I guess now I got to sell it. So they decided to go into business together as a part-time venture. Neither one at this point was quitting their day job. As a part-time venture, they decided to get together and, and decided to found a company in about September of 1982, give or take. This was the beginning of their software company. As they're coming up for a name for it, Wild Bill's original thought was he wanted to do this kind of cutesy name because, you see, they had gotten to know each other a little bit after that first meeting in Las Vegas. Because Sid Meier knew that Wild Bill also had an Atari 800, he actually invited Wild Bill to join his Atari 800 user group. Wild Bill saw that they were engaged sometimes in some slightly shader activities like pirating software. He felt, according to him, because of his Air Force upbringing and his Air Force honor code and all of that, that he, he could not be involved in something like that. That's how he tells it. In fact, as he tells it, he actually learned about the user group even before the Vegas trip. But Sid Meier remembers them not crossing paths at all until after. So I'm going to take his word on that one. Either way, though, he did know that Sid had a user group, and he had kind of jokingly said that Sid should call his user group the Sid Meyer User Group, because the acronym for that would be SMUG. He just thought that was funny. So when it came time to form a company together, he said, well, let's call it Smugger Software, like your user group. Not that Sid Meier called his user group Smug, but Wild Bill liked calling his user group Smug. So let's call it Smugger Software. Sid was like, eh, I don't know about that. And then he said, well, why don't we call it Microprose? Because he considered well-done, well-executed computer code to be elegant in the same way that great literature has elegant prose. And of course, it's for microcomputers. He said, why don't we call it Microprose? Wild Bill was like, ah, eh, no one's ever going to be able to spell it, but I guess it's kind of memorable. So sure, we'll call it Microprose. In September 1982, Microprose is born. And in October 1982, Wild Bill makes his first circuit to start selling Hellcat Ace. You know, at first, this is the very early days. You know, there's very little distribution. There's really very little way to get national exposure. So the way he started is the same way so many others started. How Rimmer started at California Pacific. How Ken Williams started with Sierra. As many of these other entrepreneurs started that we've talked about in other episodes. When he was on business trips for General Instrument or on the weekends on his own time, you know, when he was out of town, he would go out of town and he would go to computer stores and he would directly sell to computer stores. And they had Hellcat Ace and they also had the two other games that Sid had been working on. The helicopter game that I'd mentioned, an action helicopter game, which they called Chopper Rescue, and the platform game that he had been working on which was called Floyd of the Jungle. Despite the fact that Hellcat Ace was the game that the bet was all about, it was actually Floyd of the Jungle that got them into the computer stores in a big way, because one thing that was unique about the Atari 400-800 is that it actually had four joystick ports. Very unusual at the time. Not many games took advantage of that. Floyd of the Jungle was actually a four-player platform game. You could play it with four people. 
again, that was another challenge he wanted to do. He wanted to do animated characters, and he also wanted to push the limits uh, and be like, okay, let's see if I can do a four-player game. So that was really appealing to a computer store. So he would go to computer stores and he would actually usually demo Floyd of the Jungle first to get people's attention. And then he would demo the other games and particularly Hellcat Ace. I think Hellcat Ace is the one that tended to sell the best of these original three games. But Floyd of the Jungle was often the way that, you know, they first attracted the attention. He does a swing when he's on a trip for General Instrument through uh, New York and New Jersey And he stops at a computer store in New Jersey and sells 50 units to this one store of Hellcat Ace. So they're officially in business. They each, at the start of the company, they put in $1,500 each investment in the company. They use some of that money to get some floppy disks and some baggies and started duplicating. When duplicating became too boring for Sid, he hired a neighborhood kid who was also part of his user group to uh, do the duplicating for a quarter per disk. They were officially in business as microprose. So that's what he started doing. And he kept going around to different stores on the weekends on his own time because they've still both got their day jobs and he'd peddle the software. And then he got creative. Once they had a little money, they put an ad in Antic, which was a magazine that was devoted to Atari 8-bit computers. Just a tiny little ad. Then what he'd do, Wild Bill, consummate salesman, tale teller, everything. He would call up a store and say, hello, I'm interested in the game Hellcat Ace. Do you have that game? They would say, no, we do not. He'd be like, how can you not have Hellcat Ace? This game looks so amazing. Did you not see the ad in Antic Magazine for Hellcat Ace? I really, really want this game. They'd stammer out their apologies and he'd hang up. Then he'd call back again a week later, take on a slightly different voice, be like, yes, I was wondering if if you had the game uh, Hellcat Ace. And they'd be like, no, we don't. And he'd be like, how could you not have Hellcat Ace? Did you not see the ad in Antic Magazine? Blah, blah, blah. Then on the third week, he'd call back and say, hello, my name is John Steely. I am from a company called Microprose, and I am selling this game of ours called Hellcat Ace. Then they'd be like, oh, thank God, we've been getting so many requests for this game. We will take 10 copies. That was one of his major sales tactics. You know, what I'm hearing is that that big Jeffrey video game emporium learned from him. (laughs) Something like that. That got them some business, but then their super big breakthrough then was when it actually came to the attention of one of the very early computer game distributors by the name of Jerry Wolosinko. Jerry Wolosinko had a company in Boston called Apex, and it was one of the very, very first distributors. We've talked before in the context of companies like California Pacific of how very quickly here in the kind of 1981-1982 period, this computer game stuff was getting big enough that there were companies that realized that they could be middlemen and that it was very inefficient that you had all of these little tiny companies with their salesperson just taking road trips to sell software near them. And, you know, you couldn't get anything national that way. You know, you're just getting in local stores. Maybe you'd put an ad in a magazine and do a little bit of mail order business, but it was very inefficient. You know, this middleman, the distributor, which obviously existed in other fields, came into being. And uh, Jerry Wolosinko and his brother, Ehor, had a media company together and then had learned about this whole thing going on with the Atari 800 computer and, and got really interested in it. Ehor actually moved out west to California and founded his own computer program publisher named Synapse Software that focused specifically on the Atari 800 computer. Jerry Wolosinko did not follow his brother West, but stayed in the Boston area, but decided that he would create this distributor, Apex. Again, focusing on the Atari 800. 
So he distributed his brother's products, but he was also always on the lookout for other hot product. And whether one of the computer stores that he distributed to got copies or if he saw the ad in the magazines or whatever, he got wind of Hellcat Ace and the other games and he called up Microprose and said that he was interested in distributing their product and taught them all about the world of wholesale and distribution and so got them an even bigger reach. So after a short period of time here, they were really riding high because now they had some real distribution and could get their product out there in greater volume. Wild Bill was very involved. He wasn't just selling it. I mean, I talked about how he's the business guy and Sid's the tech guy in kind of this classic setup, but Wild Bill was very invested in the games as well. He in some ways served as a co-designer. I mean, he was not a programmer in any way, but he would often talk about what he wanted in a game and what kinds of things he was interested in seeing. He would play the game. He was a maniac for the games, and so he would play test, and he would offer suggestions and improvements just like he did on Hellcat Ace. There was a real partnership in the design of the games. Like, Sid was fully the programmer. He was doing all of that. And, and while Bill was purely the businessman, Sid did not want anything to do with the business. But there was a place in the middle when it came to highlighting the games where they came together. And, and Wild Bill was very interested in getting his knowledge into these games because they're making these flying games. I mean, Hellcat Ace is an arcade game. It's not a simulation, but he's very interested in getting his knowledge in there and providing suggestions. Some of the stuff that they did after that were some of his ideas. I mean, they kind of extended the Hellcat Ace thing because Hellcat Ace did very well. Some sources say it sold as many as 150,000 units. I'm a little skeptical it sold that many at this early date. That seems kind of high. It's not like we have that directly from Micropro sales figures. However many it sold, it sold well. He followed up on that. He did Spitfire Ace, which was basically same game, different theater of operations. British planes in Europe instead of American carrier-based planes in the Pacific. One of the few times that he did basically a straight-shot sequel that didn't improve much. While Bill really wanted to do a game where two people were doing the flying action together, he was like, let's have some flying shooting action where two people are playing side-by-side. Side. You know, he'd done the multiplayer, Floyd of the Jungle. Chopper Rescue had also been two-player, but the way the two-player worked was kind of different. But he kind of wanted to replicate that in a flying game. And so with that instruction, Sid created a game called Wingman, which was third person rather than first person, because doing the first person with two people was kind of hard. Meanwhile, Wild Bill also realizes that they really need to port Sid's games to other computers because the Atari 800 has been losing steam to the new Commodore 64, and it's pretty clear the Atari 800's not the future. Sid has no interest in doing ports, and he has no interest in switching from the Atari 800. The Atari 800 at this point is the computer he's interested in. It's the computer he's using. He doesn't want to get away from that. They hire a couple more part-time employees. They've hired some others. I mean, they hire an office manager. They hire a finance person. They hire a marketing assistant who actually ends up becoming Sid Meier's girlfriend and then later Sid Meier's wife. They've hired a couple of people on that side. Again, you know, kind of all kind of part-time. They, they still haven't quit their day jobs. They hire a couple of friends of Sid's that are also programmers at General Instrument and are also in his Atari 800 user group and bring them on to do some of the porting and stuff. Uh, one of those is an individual by the name of Grant Irani, and the other is a guy by the name of Andy Hollis. Now, as far as I know, Irani just does kind of the porting stuff. But Andy Hollis, it turns out, is also very interested in this game design stuff. 
he tries his hand at doing the next game in this series of fighter games, because, of course, Sid wants to move on to the next challenge. He doesn't want to just keep doing variations on Hellcat Ace all day long. Hollis moves on to do the next one in this series, MIG Alley Ace, which, again, it's still the same basic, like, arcade shoot 'em up kind of game, but taking it into a more Cold War jet fighter setting rather than the World War II settings. Hollis sees what Sid is doing on Wingman with the two-player thing, and he's like, you know, I think it would be kind of fun if we could do this game with two players flying around and shooting at things at the same time. Can you adapt your code that you used in Wingman to do split-screen first-person gameplay so that we can do the first-person Hellcat Ace gameplay, but do the two-player? And Meyer thought that sounded cool, and so they worked on that, and they implemented that successfully. So that was kind of the exciting breakthrough that they did with MIG Alley Ace. They've got all of these action-y games, and now... Wild Bill's thinking, I really want something that isn't just arcadey like this. It's like, I'm a pilot. I know a lot about planes. What if we created something that was more of a simulation and less of an arcade action game? And I've seen this new game, Flight Simulator, which at this time has just come out on the IBM PC. Now, Flight Simulator has been out for a few years. The first version came out in 1980, but the first IBM PC version, Microsoft Flight Simulator, had just come out. And he's like, there's this Flight Simulator game. We ought to be able to do something better than that. We ought to be able to do that. Why don't we do a game like that? What he really wanted to do was do a jet fighter game. He really wanted to do something using the F-15. But Sid was like, no, we can't do that because part of the problem that we have here, one of the reasons it's best to do these like older planes is we've got an issue of speed. Right now, we can't, with our current technology, do an F-15 jet fighter justice in a real simulation. It's going to be too slow. It's not going to feel like flying a jet. We need to stick to the older technology, prop plane technology, that kind of thing. Wild Bill's like, fine, let's do a Cessna. And what I'm going to do, Sid, it's like, I've got a Cessna. We're going to go up in my Cessna. We're going to fly around, and I'm going to show you how flying's done, and then you're going to put that in the game. They take a flight up in a Cessna. I actually don't know if it's Wild Bill's Cessna himself or if he just rented time on a Cessna at a local airfield. But either way, they got up in a Cessna. They flew around a little bit, and Wild Bill was like, you know, go make a game. So this is the first time that Sid actually creates a more simulation-style game, trying to emulate what Flight Simulator has done. He creates a game by the name of Solo Flight, which is not a combat game, but is more like Flight Simulator, where it provides you this simulation where you're flying around. The interesting thing is, is it's not first-person. You have a first-person instrument panel, but you actually see your plane in third-person. But it has, you know, a more realistic flight model and tries to do some stuff with terrain and altitude and all of that. I mean, it's still very primitive because we're talking about 1983, 1984 on Atari 800s and similar machines. They're doing something that's actually a simulation. There's a pure flying part to it, and then there's kind of a game part where you play a male pilot that has to fly across the country uh, delivering mail. At this point, they've gotten some distribution. You know, they've gone through uh, Wolosenko's company and they've gotten a little more distribution, but they still don't have a particularly high profile nationwide. Because even a distributor like Apex, Wolosenko's company, is still a pretty small company. They're not necessarily getting big nationwide distribution in all of the biggest stores. They need to be discovered. The sales are starting to get a little bit dodgy. Sales of their old games are going down. They're not growing as much. 
So Wild Bill decides that if they're really going to grow, they have to get themselves to the consumer electronics show. The big show, where everyone displays their product to all of the buyers of all the major chains all around the country. So he takes out a loan against his Volvo car or something like that in order to raise the money, the like ten dollars to $15,000 that's required to rent space for a tiny booth at the uh, June Consumer Electronics Show. They're a real small, pretty slapdash operation. They don't have slick marketing materials. They don't have a slick banner or tablecloths identifying them. They don't know how the setup works. They get there. Their tables aren't there. They don't know when they're going to get their tables. So Wild Bill goes out and somehow talks his way into three mismatched tables, you know, different colors. Real professional looking. When the real tables show up, the guys bringing the tables take one look at the tables they already have and kind of shrug to themselves. Well, I guess they already have tables, so walk off with their official tables. They've just got like one or two computers set up on these mismatched tables. No big signage, no big banners, no big anything. But they're there. They're in the big time. 1984, I believe, June CES. Everyone's there looking at their product. One of the companies that comes by and looks at it is a company called Hessware human-engineered software. Hessware was a very short-lived computer game company founded by J. Balakrishnan, but it was a highly capitalized company because they had actually gone out and gotten venture capital. Not everyone in the computer game space went out and sought venture capital, but Jay was one of those that did. So Hessware was in the middle of, quite frankly, biting off more than it could chew and was on the lookout for new products. They saw Solo Flight. They liked Solo Flight. They recognized that this could be a legitimate competitor to something like Microsoft Flight Simulator. So they offered to buy the rights to the game, just flat out buy the rights to the game for $250,000. They had a lot of VC money. This is a pretty big deal. You know, the cash flow was dwindling a little bit. Sales weren't that great. This could really keep them going and set them up for future success, fund additional products that would keep feeding the beast and keep Micropros in operation. Wild Bill was really, really seriously considering this. He was the business guy. They were partners. They were equal partners in the business. It was, it was a true 50-50 split. They did need the consent of both of them to do anything, but Sid was in general just not interested in taking part in the company in that way. Because they were 50-50 partners, you know, of course, he still needs to bring the deal to Sid. And so while Bill's like, yeah, this company, they offered this, whatever. You know, they both tell the story pretty similarly. It, it basically happened this way to both accounts. Sid basically says, I did entrust you with the power to make the business decisions, and I trust your business acumen, and I don't really want to be involved in that part. But then he paused, and he said, but I've heard that you never sell the family jewels. The idea of this is, if you're an individual that has fallen on hard times and, and you're having trouble eating, you know, feeding yourself or whatever, and you're super poor and you're pawning everything in sight just to keep the heat on one more week or keep food on the table one more day, you sell everything, but you don't sell your prized family heirlooms, like the family jewels that have been passed down from generation to generation. At the end of the day, selling those family jewels is only going to keep food on your table, keep the heat on, keep the mortgage paid, whatever, for a little bit longer. And then you'll still be in the same situation a day, a week, a month later. But now you will have lost one of the core treasures that defines who you are as a person. And was it really worth 
that quick cash to keep going for a little bit, sacrificing your long-term family investment and family heirloom. You don't sell the family jewels. That's the line you don't cross. They both knew they had a very good game. They both knew that this was going to be a really great competitor to Flight Simulator. They felt they had a better flight model than Flight Simulator did, and reviewers at times would agree with them once the game was released. Just selling it for a flat 250k and, and never getting anything else, you know, no royalties, nothing after that, it felt like selling the family jewels. It may keep us going for a little bit, but what have we sacrificed? And so when Sid said that, while Bill said no deal, turned out to be the best thing ever because Hessware was in the process of falling apart and went bankrupt just a little bit afterwards. So the game may have never even come out or would have gotten very little distribution. Nobody would have even discovered it. You know, that $250,000 would have been basically worthless because they'd have gotten nothing, no recognition for it. Instead, Wild Bill was able to sell hard to some of the major retailers, including Sears, because Sears sold Atari 8-bit computers, so they were also interested in the software. According to Wild Bill, Sublogic had been giving them a kind of hard time on terms, and so they were kind of burnt out on dealing with Sublogic for flight simulators, so they were willing to buy a lot of solo flight inventory. So they made some good retail and distribution deals. They got some good reviews when it came out, and Solo Flight was a great seller, and they definitely got more out of it by selling it themselves than they would have gotten out of that 250k that they were being offered from Hessware. Sid Meier did not venture into the realm of business decisions very often at Microprose, but when he did, it mattered. Now, of course, while Solo Flight was one of the family jewels— It was not the only family jewel coming along in 1984, because, of course, it was also joined very quickly afterwards what was, to that point, by far the most successful game Microprose had done, and the game that really finally definitively put them on a solid financial footing at the end of this kind of early period of the company, and that is F-15 Strike Eagle. We may recall from just a little bit ago that an F-15 game is really what Wild Bill wanted when they were moving on to their more simulation-based play. He wanted a jet fighter game. He was a fighter pilot. He loved fighters. He loved the fast action, the thrills, going after the opponents, all of that great stuff. And so he had really wanted a jet fighter game. And Sid said, no, we really need to stick to this more primitive technology, prop planes, slower planes, because that's what the technology can do. So no F-15 game for you. During the period of time that he was making Solo Flight and after, two things changed of great importance. The first of those things was that Sid, as always, was working on his tech. He's always working on improving his tech, and he came up with a new way of doing wireframe rotations that would allow them to impart a little more speed to a flight sim. We're still talking about very low frame rates by today's standards. We're not talking 30 frames a second, 60 frames per second, crazy, like you get on modern systems, but still something fast enough that you could at least feel a little bit like you were in a jet fighter. Then the second thing is that a new model of the F-15 was put into service, the F-15E Strike Eagle. The regular F-15 is called the Eagle. The game is called the Strike Eagle, and that's named specifically after the F-15E. Now, the F-15E was a fighter-bomber configuration of the F-15. 
It was a two-seater, unlike the regular F-15, and it was designed to both be an air superiority fighter that could get you over a target, but then also a ground support fighter that could then use laser-guided munitions to destroy targets on the ground as well. It had a dual role. What really changed things for Sid in terms of the F-15E coming about was that it had the most advanced heads-up display, or HUD, that had yet been seen on an American military fighter plane. Now, I think any of our audience today that plays video games of any kind is familiar with the concept of a HUD or a heads-up display, as I'm sure you are as well, Jeffrey. I am. Everyone likes to have their heads-up display. We got to know how much life we have, how much armor we have, and certainly where the minimap is. (laughs) Absolutely. And of course, while military heads-up displays don't have things like minimaps and little doom guy in the corner getting bloodier as you continue to get shot, The idea of the heads-up display comes from the military because before you had a HUD, for most things you did in a plane, you had to look down at your instrument panel to figure out what was going on, to figure out your altitude, your range, your pitch and yaw, all of this stuff. You had to look down at your instruments. And so as a pilot, you had to kind of do a, a dual watching where you had to watch what was going on in front of you in the cockpit and also watch what was going on in the instrument panel, not unlike being in a modern car today and looking at the road and having to glance down at your GPS and other controls on your dashboard. That's all fine and good for driving a car. That's less fine and good when you're engaged in fast-paced aerial combat. So there had been a lot of developments in HUDs, heads-up displays, where critical information could actually be projected in front of you on kind of a glass, transparent or translucent screen in front of you so that you could see a lot of critical information about your craft and about your target without taking your eyes off of the action. The heads-up display was absolutely perfect for games. I mean, it's almost made for a video game. I'm actually looking at some of these heads-up displays on the Strike Eagle right now. It is well done. It conveys the critical information. What do I need to know in a critical dogfight moment? What do I need to know? I need to know what pitch my plane is at. Am I going left? Am I going right? Am I going up and down? Is the ground coming closer or is the ground going away? I need to know what direction I'm going in. Am I going east, west? I need to know that so I can circle around and hit my target. Exactly. That just translates into gameplay so well. So it's not just that he had come up with these new, better routines that would allow it to be faster, but the HUD display of the F-15 Strike Eagle inspired Sid from a game design perspective to be like, okay... I can really do a good job making a really cool game where instead of having to look down at instrument panels, I can just use this realistic heads-up display just like the pros use in real life. With Solo Flight done, he told Wild Bill, okay, I'm going to do your F-15 game. So he created F-15 Strike Eagle. It was a really good simulation. It did a lot of things that simulations at the time hadn't necessarily done before, including countermeasures, for instance, like chaff as part of the model. With his new wireframe rotations, he was able to get the graphics going at a pretty nice speed. Then they did their typical collaboration thing where they created a really big, really excessive manual full of all sorts of additional details about flying jets and about combat in jets. Some of it not even stuff that was necessarily specifically useful for the game. 
but just all part of creating this immersive experience and enhancing the idea that you are really stepping into this role of an F-15 fighter pilot, something that Wild Bill Steely was particularly interested in because, like I said, he was the business guy. He wasn't doing game design. But he was really interested in verisimilitude. He wanted accuracy. He wanted immersion. And he was both a fighter pilot and an avid game player. So he wanted to feel like he was experiencing something authentic, both from the point of view of a fighter pilot and as a gamer. When you put all of this together, a great simulation model, immersive manuals and other materials a reasonably fast speed, and a period of time when military flight simulators were particularly in vogue with the people that had computers and were buying computer games at the time, what you ended up with was an absolute smash hit. They had had a couple of games that had sold 100,000 or more units. Uh, As we said earlier, Hellcat Ace may have done, though I'm a little skeptical that it's sold so well that early. Solo Flight definitely did. You know, these were pretty decent games, but F-15 Strike Eagle sold hot out of the gate, and it just kept selling 100, 200, 300, 400. By the time you took every version into account, which not just includes computer versions, but also later versions that they did on consoles like the Nintendo Entertainment System where they licensed the game. So not solely on computer platforms, but when you put every version of the original Strike Eagle together, it sold over 1 million copies. For a computer game company in the mid to late 1980s, that was just phenomenally outstanding. So that one-two punch of Solo Flight and F-15 Strike Eagle is what allowed the company's finances to stabilize and allowed the company to confidently start looking to the future. Where does that leave us? Not as far into Microprose's history as I was hoping, to be quite honest. Really? (laughs) But we've established this kind of paradigm. We've got this great business guy, or, or at least this very flamboyant hard-charging salesman kind of business guy in Wild Bill Steely. We've got this great programmer in Sid Meier. We have two individuals that are both passionate about doing great game design, accurate game design, great playing games. Both are passionate about games. They each have their area of responsibility where they're great at. They each overlap in this key area of delivering the best product they possibly can. And because of this synergy, they are starting to see some success. In our next episode, in our second part of our look at Microprose, we will see how this success begins to multiply as they add another element into this already potent mix, and that is the element of game design. Microprose is one of the very early companies that hires dedicated game designers, not programmers that happen to also make games or design games, but actual designers. This will have an immediate impact on enhancing their simulation games as they move on from Solo Flight and F-15 Strike Eagle. But as we'll see as we go along in our look at Micropro, this decision to bring in designers, which I think had a lot to do with Wild Bill's craving for realism and immersion to a very high degree, This bringing of designers is going to fundamentally reshape the company and is going to get us to the point where they are moving from these flight simulator type games on to these 4X kind of strategy games. And it's very crucial to that transition. 
We've kind of looked at the foundation and how the passions of these two individuals meshed perfectly to get a jumpstart in the highly competitive early computer game industry. And in part two, we'll see how they continue to grow and thrive with this emphasis on design. If you've listened to the Civilizing Sid Meier episode, believe me, if this first episode is any indication, we still got a wild ride and a lot more information that we didn't have six years ago. Mm-hmm. We will see you next time in part two and possibly part three. Who knows? <laughs> next time on They Create World. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworld. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.